Mantap sekali Hello, welcome to the cul-de-sac, an amalgamation of ideas and synaptic connections from our brains to yours. On this episode, I'm joined by Robert Platt, a painter from London, England, whose practice expands far beyond the confines of canvas into scenic design, costuming, optics, architectural installations, and film. His lush oil paintings span subjects from hermits and seekers to neurons and tree branches and are often created using pigments that Robert has mined or grown himself. Philosophically, his work deals with the role of contemporary landscape, human perception, surface, and materiality in the age of increasing virtuality. Robert engages deeply with these subject matters through exploring caves, making mountain pilgrimages, and even sailing to the polar north as part of the Arctic Circle Residency, which saw him in an interdisciplinary crew of artists and scientists sailing around in a traditionally rigged tall ship through the mountainous Arctic archipelago of Svalbard, 10 degrees from the North Pole. A film Robert made while there features his iconic dazzle costuming, which is making the rounds at film festivals and is called Becoming Arctic. When I was a student at the University of Michigan, I was fortunate to spend a month caving and creating with Robert and cul-de-sac alumni Riley Hansen during a study abroad trip to the Burren College of Art in Ireland. It was here that I learned the extent of Robert's exploring practice, descending with him into some of the most incredible cave systems on the planet. This was not like walking into mammoth caves or something. There were no guardrails. We were squeezing, crawling, worming our way through the crust of the earth. The experience remains one of my favorite in my life. Currently, Robert is a professor at the University of Michigan Stamp School of Art and Design. He holds a PhD in painting from the Kyoto City University of Arts, an MA from the Royal College of Art, where he brushed shoulders with the likes of Charles Saatchi and drove around the paintings of Peter Doig. He also made a lot of work, has had shows all over the world, and it was a true honor to catch up and reconnect. This conversation is presented unedited. I hope you enjoy it. I sure did. Well, um, I kind of want to just jump into this thing that I read about when I was looking back at your stamps talk uh, from 2016. Yeah. And it really stuck with me out of that is like this idea of psychic nomadism, sort of roaming around, picking out moral and religious and political, ethical pieces out of existing systems and putting them together to make one's own, um, you know, viewpoint of the world. Um, I don't know, is that something that is at, like, would you say that's at the core of, of your philosophy? Yeah, that was really nicely put. Um, that's certainly at the kind of forefront of my inquiry. Uh, that and alongside this uh, nebulous notion of visuality, you know, and how, that, how we look at stuff, um, spectatorship, and how we enact those uh, complex relations of looking at stuff. Um, and nomadism is, is certainly a kind of uh, an aspect of that or a strategy. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's very much the kind of nutshell of my, my kind of interests. Word, yeah, cool. Um, oh, something fell. That's okay. 
um, yeah, I think that uh, I like that. I, mean, I just I just enjoy that. I just wanted to state that um, when you you mentioned uh, that you have a tendency towards hermeticism, mm-hmm. and um, I was read and and then you know I'm also uh, aware of like all all the work that you do with lenses and uh, reflective discs, like big black discs mounted on walls that you can see yourself in. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you were familiar with the uh, 15th century hermetic. Uh, John D. John Doe? Oh, John D. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. And his yeah, this kind of mystic. Yeah, yeah. And and he had all these kind of relationships with royalty, and uh, they kind of viewed him with respect and suspicion. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I love that. You know, they found some of his kind of mirrors, and they have them in museums. He he was an incredibly interesting guy. I I love those kind of. Um, those figures during that time that are kind of a teeter between religious fervor uh, uh, but also this kind of anarchic uh, uh, mysticism as well. Yeah. So there's a, do you know the work of um, Athanasius Kircher? I don't, no. I think you'd really like, be really interested, you know, because again, it was that kind of interesting time where you know, uh, artists, geologists, historians, uh, inventors, um, opticians, they were all kind of rolled into one and there, there weren't these distinctions. There was this this kind of era of the Plymouth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was a kind of Jesuit and, uh, you know, really a, a strong believer, but at the same time, he was sedu- totally seduced by mysticism and the inexplicable. And this was before that, you know, the, you know the the, uh, restoration and the new sciences and so there was like no you know they would find these rocks minerals from the ground that had uh, like images distant images that looked like people's faces and so there, there was these kind of hybrid realities between mysticism and these kind of uh, ancient cultures burying their past and he got so much wrong it was all these hypothetical situations why uh, we have volcanoes or you know underground caverns um, and uh, you know he made sketches for early cinema uh, and uh, totally fascinating person but it's like all those kind of mismatches category errors trying desperately to make sense of a nonsensical kind of chaotic world oh man yeah dude i'm definitely gonna have to check that out that that whole line of thinking just seems to make so much like sense to in the situation we are in now like i I feel like we're in hyper-normalization, like it's occurring in front of us, the Adam Curtis documentary. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I think, that's drive this idea of like mysticism, religious fervor, um, I mean, it's all, it, politics now, it's all wrapped up now into this one sort of just like thing to me. And that's why I think it changed my work a lot too when I started contemplating like all the, connecting all the dots between all these things and how they actually like, implement actions so yeah i'm gonna have to check that artist out for sure yeah yeah i i think we we really as a culture we need to um engage with the irrational yes definitely Uh, yeah we 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 can search up we can you know categorize we can uh rationalize everything and i think we desperately need you know i think artists uh creators uh, need to be a touchstone for the irrational, you know, to, to kind of re-engage with that. I think so. Yeah, I think I, when I when would you also think that the irrational is that does that factor into like Carl Jung's like shadow work 
Like, I feel like that's what we need in our culture is like we need some serious shadow work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this kind of notion of imaginative speculation, you know, mm -hmm. just imagining something alternative than, you know, we perhaps know the truth, we can find the truth. A sixth grader can find the truth um, of all things existing. And we can see, see them, we can see into our minds through MRI scans and everything. There's no mysteries, there's no stories, no sailors stories anymore, far, far away things. So we have to kind of reinvent. Mm -hmm. I think the one mystery I think still remains is like we don't know we don't know the hard problem of consciousness. Right. You know? Right. Right. I was going to ask, do you have you gotten involved at all with the consciousness center at U of M? No, they're super dope. I went to one of their uh, conferences on psychedelics, and uh, so this U of M now has they have uh, FDA approval or you know I guess federal approval to to do psilocybin research. They have DMT research happening here. Um, which is pretty sick, and uh, I think there's, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of, I think it would be a good, you know, fit for you to find some collaboration. Yeah, yeah, sure. no, I've, I've written it down, and uh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, that's what's great about the U of M, that these, uh, everyone's in their own little corners doing these weird shit. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's what I most appreciate about, like, the sort of academic system, as many pitfalls as it has, is that it really allows obviously artists to to get involved in things that is not commercially driven it's knowledge driven you know it's like you get to do projects that aren't about like making the same work for the rest of your life so you can have gallery shows you mm. know like and i wondered i think that's a good segue i guess into asking you about um how you see as a painter like how you see like what differences or what maybe rants you might have about either the gallery system or the academic system and how to how to um you know get paid like how to like have a material existence while pursuing mm. these philosophical ideas and making work making art yeah that's that's a really great uh question i mean i but you know i've, I've kind of been through the, that uh dalliance with you know galleries uh in in tokyo and london um, and, you know, to be really honest, where there's this kind of big expectation when you come into, especially a provincial institute like U of M, that, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, you want to be a, a gallery artist. And as, a, as an educator, those are kind of like high points for your kind of professional career. Um, but I'm really disenchanted. I have been disenchanted with it for the longest time. Um, even while I was embroiled in it, I was kind of deeply, deeply suspicious. Um, and um, so I was kind of, when that all came to a kind of crashing halt in the 2008 kind of financial crisis, it was a kind of a breath of fresh air and relief. Um, of course, you know, I was just freewheeling and, you know, um, surviving as an artist on the income from my work, which was fantastic. And I was just ingrained in me the kind of ups and downs of the financial situation. I was kind of used to that. But I, my, you know, send my first uh, son, you know, he was born and then I was like, oh crap, what can I do? And I just managed just by osmosis to kind of realign and insert myself into academia kind of seamlessly. So it was kind of unheard of you know, for me to kind of make that transition. So all of a sudden I'm kind of leaving the, you know, that really kind of unsettling uh, 
commercial situation with galleries and relationship with making your work, which is the deep connection with work, and then it's it's kind of just frittering those tokens away to wealthy people's houses and that kind of dance and flirtation with with that with money and people with money was really dis deeply distasteful to me. Um, and so arriving in academia in Michigan with the expectation that I'd be continuing this and bringing that with me. I kind of, I had to softly distance myself from that. Um, and I saw the potential of, you know, just collaborating and really making the work I really wanted to make. And so I started to distance myself from the galleries, which wasn't difficult being in Michigan, you know, um, and, and take advantage of, you know, space of really making work and, you know, showing in more experimental places and doing a lot of tra travel, um, and what I really appreciate about being in the Institute is that you can be a dilettante, you know, dilettantism is, is, is a, you know, a dirty word in academia, mm -hmm. you know, but I think for the artist, it, it's essential, mm -hmm. you know, to be, you know, you have your anchor in whatever your practice or your way of working or just art per se, but to have, to be shaking hands and wear, put on, put on a hat of a, uh, you know, neuroscientists for, for some time, you know, uh, and to put on the hat of an anthropologist. Um, and, you know, th those, it, because those fields are so narrow and people get so blinkered mm -hmm. um, that it takes artists to come in from the outside and to bring new relationships. Uh, and I think that's what's really ex exciting when, when you can kind of make new connections and infiltrate from a different direction. Mm -hmm. So that for me is a really thriving and healthy kind of environment. Uh, and it's certainly sustained me, but it always brings me back to like, okay, well, how do I disseminate? How do, how do I get stuff out? How do I communicate? Because right. you can be continually, um, you know, making these explorations and discoveries and, uh, but where do they go and how do you kind of package that? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's um, something that is a, a huge dilemma and you know and especially like times like today where it's uh there's just you know no one's interested or you know in looking or um purchasing i feel like you know i you know i grew up in uk in london in the art world and in japan they have a long historical traditions of painting and respecting art, creative endeavor uh it's a completely different relationship and i feel like you know you know, Michigan, uh, US is kind of much more involved in the spectacle, something, something oh, yeah. more transient. Um, and yeah. so I'm really adjusting my expectations. Um, and so I, I think, you know, how, and just being at home, you know, that, that has been a massive, almost an epiphany because I started off, um, and I'm serious when it feels like I'm on an artist residency because I'm really productive. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not traveling, I'm not going here, there, everywhere. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really ground my feet in and I, I'm working on large canvases in my living room and you know I'm experiencing I'm looking at it I'm doing it my children are looking at it you know the boundaries between me going to work teaching me going to the studio you know painting um, all those boundaries dissolved and my kids play and that play kind of you know, merges and seeps into my work and my work and everything, and it's mutual. So all these kind of 
you know, the home is where you, you know, empty bodily fluids, you know, you, you create beauty, uh, you cook, you joke, you scream, you know, it's all these really rich experiences uh, under one roof. And I find that really, really interesting as a place to make and to see and think about the creative process. So I, I think I'm really interested in the, the kind of domestic as a site for experiencing work, you know? Yeah. I mean, in my, in my yard, I, I made a, a camera obscura and it's like a, a, it's like a black room in, and 20 feet up in the trees. And whenever, you know, I just walk up there and it's like an immersion sensory deprivation chamber. Um, nice. And, you know, and I just get to see a reflection of the outside trees, which is turned upside down. And now, you know, all the, all the leaves have, you know, uh, disappeared. So it just looks like a, a, a vein, a big vein system uh, wow. or neurons um, inside this kind of black room. Um, and, you know, I kind of made it thinly disguised as a tree hut for my kids, but they have no interest in it because it's too dark. It's, you know, so I just go up there with a glass of wine and, and shut <laughs> off. And, you know, it's like... <laughs> there, that's so cool, man. There's so much in what you just said um, from, you know, from like these this dissolving of boundaries, which I think also is like obviously very important in the work that you make already. The, the sort of like ability now to like have your family close to you to the work i think it's so dope that you're building these uh things at your house i just started um i mean i i've been gardening since i left school and so like right. been cultivating this practice and um you know it's like it, it yeah you are as an artist who has like a wide range of interests you're always trying to like bring various pieces of your interests into the work i'm, I'm talking about you but i'm also talking about me talking about like a lot of artists too i think that's um mm. you know it's a very important and um i think that's like the work i'm attracted to anyways is like people who do that people who synthesize many different little things into like a really nice dissemination and i know mm. we were kind of talking about gallery shows is like that dissemination and i've always loved your shows i think i went to the butcher's daughter one in detroit um and these the camera obscuras i mean there's just there's just such rich like gallery shows and and often you know, like the work is is often different between shows. You know, it's not like the same sort of painting. It's not the same mm. sort of obscure camera. I don't know. I just I appreciate that in in the work you do. Um. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's really, um, you know, the famous painter Peter Doig. He was uh, uh, I got to be friends with him because I was uh, when I was living in London. I was driving vans. And I ended up delivering his artwork a lot. And um, because I looked like just a local boy, I was wearing shaved head and a hoodie, and he didn't see me as an artist. Mm -hmm. So he really, and he was just thankful that I was kind of, I could have a conversation um, and not be scared of me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we, 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 you know, we started talking a lot. And, uh, and, and he was talking about, you know, in an exhibition, you know, I'm, I'm a famous painter and I kind of hate it. I don't know how I got in this situation because mm. um, I just like doing the stuff, but I always deliberately put in a, a shitty painting yeah. in an exhibition, you know. Um, I've noticed I just, that, that in yours too. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. You know, I think, 
You have to. You yeah. have to. Like, and just put something really deeply questionable. It's just like, what is that? You know, it was really great, but you know, yeah. And that but is is a, a kind of get out, an escape, a window, a door into a, another kind of you know, like you got to sow a seed of doubt because yeah. if, if it's all tied up and really confident, I think it shines of. BS, I remember you know. I saw I saw one of the paintings you put up in a stamps gallery. I forget which show, but there were some some googly eyes on it, and it made me really upset. <laughs> and then I was like, I'm I'm no, this is yeah. I was, I, those googly eyes is that is that your ugly piece in the painting? Yeah, well, so I, I've actually been putting googly eyes in a lot um, because it's so crass and so you know so just you shouldn't do it, you know. Um, but it, it kind of, it's, it's funny, it's absurd, uh, and it's a different aesthetic. Um, and, you know, I like to paint something that has, you know, on one level, a level of sophistication, you know, something that might be transformative, like a tanker painting, um, that kind of is still and quiet and contemplative. And then there's these bloody googly eyes that popped on there really crudely, and they kind of look back on you. And it's like that moment when the monk is slapped on the back with a stick from his meditation and like crack, you know, you, you wake up yeah. or you've been looking, you've been looking at something too long. Um, and so this kind of immersive kind of painterly experience engenders that some type of, uh, you know, meditation or sharing in its, its making. Uh, and it's a time consuming thing. And I like the googly eyes because they suddenly like a blink, they open and that you kind of share this you know, visual fatigue because uh, they never blink; they just stare. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sort of shifting back to this notion of like you you travel a lot. I mean, since I've known you, I've just always you know you're, you're always traveling. You go to the Arctic Circle on ships with rigging within ten degrees of the North Pole. Did you actually ever make it to the North Pole? Uh, no, no, okay, no. Okay. It's you know we got we got really close because I, I you know I went recently and um, we you know, the 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 captain was uh, a really young guy and really just loved sailing mm-hmm. uh, and he wanted to try and push as far north as we could get um, but mm-hmm. you're at the mercy of tides and weather and moving sheets of ice so we yeah. did, we I, th- I think we got like three degrees or something like really close yeah I mean I just read in the news that. I mean, they've kind of been able to track that there's about to be this heat spike in the North Pole, which is going to plunge a bunch of cold air down into Europe. And so, like, you just see this climate catastrophe, like, playing out in real time. I don't see a lot of people, not, no one's talking about, it's, it's probably going to it's going to happen this season. No one's really talking about it because there's so much news going on, of course. But, mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the Arctic. So I'd love to hear uh, about your experience there and about... Um, the camera obscuras you built and also could you tell me when did you go the second time i know you went in 2012 but was it two yeah so just last year okay uh, cool. yeah uh and uh it was it took me that long to i mean it was totally seductive place and you get there um and all you want to do is just to document every single second it's it's such a seductive uh desolate uh place but then, you know, you realize there's actually nothing to photograph. Mm. It's, it's like a no man's land, you know, the, the kind of sky dissolves into the landscape um, and you, you can't discern anything, you know, and even like with your camera, you can't focus on anything. 
Uh, and so I very quickly understood the futility of like self-documentation or you know bringing back these trophies and just sat in my you know portable camera obscura and I projected what was outside down onto the snow inside and that was a really immersive and beautiful experience you know because you're in this you know freezing conditions and are blowing and really vulnerable uh, as a person um, and then you kind of create this uh, dark chamber within this cathedral of light um, and so that contrast was was really exciting to be to feel safe and secure like you're inside your own head and to observe and just watch people like aimlessly wandering around looking for something to photograph to do but there's nothing to do um, so that was that premise was really interesting yeah um, it sounds and, like uh, maybe like maybe the the perfect example of this idea of like a smooth space oh there, yeah the arctic yeah yeah, 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 totally, you know, and Chris, I mean, you can see everything, but, you know, you see too much mm -hmm. and you get like snow blindness and you, you, it's disorientating, you know, one footstep becomes another and, and it's like, you know, as you know, Nikki, we're in the, in the caves, it's the inversion of that, but, you know, light instead of abject blackness, you know. Yeah, totally. Uh, um, but the, so the second, yeah, the second time was, uh, you know, I went with purpose and it took me like, you know, seven years to kind of process that experience. And then I went back and I, I made a film and I took my, you know, refined camera obscura um, and some film equipment, light film equipment. And, uh, you know, I've just, just made a movie which uh, is starting the, the kind of rounds. Um, <laughs> so that, 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 that was really... Now yeah yeah what's it called the film uh it's called becoming arctic sweet i saw the costumes yeah, look fantastic yeah 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 i'll send you i'll send you the film uh it's you know there's a uh um, a vimeo link cool. so I'll, I'll send you that sweet thanks yeah it's tight i'd like to see it um speaking of caves here we are this is i make a drawing for each podcast and this one is gonna is gonna be you in a cave and I wanted to ask you, uh, what would you be painting on that little easel there? Oh, okay. That's a, that's a good question. So I think I'd be um, painting myself as a worm. Perfect. Okay, I'll put it on there. <laughs> we'll see how good I can do it. <laughs> cool, man. Um, let's talk about lenses. I, yeah. Um, I'm, I came from a photo-based, like, early... Growing, uh, growing up, I was I uh, doing I st kind of stopped photography. I mean, I use it only like for personal things now. I don't really consider mm. it an art practice as much as like a documentary practice for myself. I make weird distinctions. Um, so I'm interested in lenses, and I'm um, this this thing I heard once that I wanted to run by you is that perspective was codified in 1444, like the, like in painting, and I wanted to mm. ask. Is that true? Like, do we know? Do we know? Was was perspective used in the ancient world in in work? Well, yeah. So th those dates work out. So Alberti is attributed to um, you know the the development of linear perspective, uh, and so you see a sudden shift in um, that kind of you know you had this weird hybrid planometric. Uh, you know complexified space um, and then there's a big shift 
uh, in Italian re Renaissance, you know, with the architect Alberti. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we suddenly see everything changing, uh, you know, conception of space, horizons, the uh, placing the figure um, in, you know, in that space becomes one of control. Um, because before they were, you know, you and that's also the birth of like landscape painting and those traditions. Um, there were all these kind of hierarchies, and as long as there was some system where the, you know, the, uh, the figure, the human figure, um, could dominate and control that environment, um, then then that's basically what it was. It was it was this kind of Cartesian perspectivalism, um, but it, it had already begun in uh, 1500s. Word. I wonder. I was wondering if that was because of like really simple lenses that were being like arriving into people's lives at that time. I, I can't couldn't really find a, a good date to even like go off of that idea with. But I thought it was interesting that I, I always thought of lenses. I guess as kind of like a newer technology. But I read that the first lens that we know about is something called the Nimrod lens which is a layered lens, a piece of 3,000-year-old 3, rock crystal. Mm. And it was apparently used to, to start fires in, uh, like, the Assyrian palace of Nimrod. <laughs> and, like... Yeah! So that's pretty sweet. And then I also... Uh, there's more. Pliny the Elder in 79 AD talks about Nero using a concave emerald to watch the gladiators. And this is just, like... <sighs> I was, like, really shocked to sort of, like, learn about that sort of technology. Oh, totally. It's really, really interesting. This notion that, you know, um, uh, the seduction of immersive technologies is a 21st century thing is, is not true. Mm -hmm. You know, we have always had propensity for immersive situations, improving reality. Um, and that started in antiquity. You know, Athanasius Kersha, he uh, was a kind of grandfather of that and he was doing drawings of uh, magic lanterns early cinematic you know things uh, yeah using uh, you know colored rocks um, and uh, you know and there were simple lenses um, already in, in action and uh, of course you know Hockney later on has been talking about how artists uh, the, the kind of this suspicion that uh, a lot of you know 17th century painters and earlier had their hands on you know cut glass lenses um, to you know, re-represent space. Um, so they were using portable camera obscuras, you know, as early as the 1500s. Yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, I mean, but it, what's really interesting is that it, you know, predates that because after all, a camera obscura is just a hole in a room, mm -hmm. and there's this. Um, uh, it's called the Gatton theory, which is, uh, you know, you know, you you have the cave paintings with these characteristics of. Um, you know, bison and stags with kind of big chests and small little back legs and multiple heads. You know, that's the kind of characteristic that you see of these cave paintings. Um, and we kind of assume it to be some stylistic um, interpretation. But the Gatton theory says that, uh, you know, early cave dwellers would not live in the caves, they would live in the mouth of the cave in temporary huts, mm -hmm. you know, made from animal skins. And of course, you know, you would have a punctured um, hide with a spear or something, and you would create these, you know, impromptu uh, camera obscuras. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, that people would be so incredible, they because they'd have bare chests, and they would have these projections of these roaming animals on the plains, you know, on their bodies. And in some kind of panic, they would pick up, you know, these flat rocks and they would 
you know, draw um, directly on their bodies these uh, projections. And they would use these drawings, these interpretations as sketchbooks for the, you know, the cave paintings. So this is the theory and, you know, there's something to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think this, because camera obscures can happen anywhere, anytime. If you're in your garage and, you know, you have a hole in a floorboard or something, sometimes you can get this. And that has happened throughout history. I wanted, I wanted to know, do you think, uh, I think of our brain sometimes as a camera obscura. You know, our eyes are interpreting these signals, data comes into the eyeball, is transmitted to an electric signal, shot over to your brain, which then draws on a sort of catalog of symbols and experiences that were programmed by our cultural existence. And so I, I always think about like Plato's cave and uh, too, like this sort of like thing that you're not really, in, you're not really sure if you're, if you're watching a, a reflection of reality, like are we in reality? This is kind of like getting into like simulation theory. Are we in a simulation? Um, you know, uh, a lot of philosophers say it's, it's kind of like unknown. It's not, it's, I, I forget, there was one philosopher who I forget right now who, who had like a, some sort of test. But he, I think he actually came down on the side of like, yeah, we probably are in a simulation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that was um, Descartes, okay. you know, uh, and he would, uh, you know, 17th century French philosopher, and he kind of used um, this model of a, a dead man's eye, which he dissected, and he used it as a lens, as a demonstration. Uh, and he kind of invented this, uh, you know, notion of introversion and extroversion of, you know, the rays of light coming in, reflecting, and then going back out. Um, so he was the kind of grandfather of, of vision um, and he did this gruesome experiment, you know, with human eyes or a bullseye, you know, which you can still do today. I was trying, actually, I was trying to get my eyes dilated and I had a conversation with the optrician. I said, hey, can you get me hold of, you know, and if I bring in an eye, can, can we do some stuff? Yeah, you just got to uh, take, take a low dose of psilocybin. Your eyes yeah, yeah, away. yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I I really you know feel that there's some credence in that, and I, I'm sure you experienced it when we went in the caves. That um, you know you really get a sense of the brain um, as a camera obscura, and you have your you know your kind of light mounted on your head, um, creating this artificial light, and it's kind of hazy images that you know fuse your deep minds cerebral kind of interpretations and then this kind of de depleted uh, kind of sense of vision uh, and that kind of marriage between speculation, imagination um, and you know like you know when you close your eyes you, you, you can't bear to not see or image anything you can't imagine the void so you, you force yourself and that's that's where vision becomes really interesting. Yeah per um, personally when I close my eyes I get like a lot of phosphenes like there's always mm. a light show on in my in my my closed eyes which I and like sometimes I almost think that those phosphenes are telling me something in my crazy head so I'm, I'm like I'm kind of like looking in the tea leaves of phosphenes sometimes yeah <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know what's next um, so I never knew the story of like how did you um, like end up in Japan so like much in my life, it's kind of happenstance. Uh, I was at the Royal College and, you know, in the thick of it. And, you know, it's a really strong sense of kind of rivalry and everyone doing stuff. And, you know, you're in your studio and you've got Charles Saatchi walking around and all the galleries. And this is kind of 
you know, flutter of excitement and activity and everyone's important. Um, and again, that, that was kind of distasteful to me. And it, it was an interruption. I just wanted to make work and listen and learn stuff. And there was all these flirtations with, uh, you know, the high life. Um, so that I saw a sign on the board, you know, Kyoto Exchange. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in reductionism and distillation of, you know, sensory things. Um, so that, that seems to make sense. So I just kind of fumbled this uh, proposal together. And the next minute I'm from London, I'm sitting in a, a you know, 10 foot square tatami room in rural Japan with nothing, you know. Um, no language, uh, no outside communication, no phone, email, you know. Uh, and it was a shock to the system and it really grounded me. And to be honest, I was there for three months and the, the first month I was just terrified. I'd get on a bus expecting to go into town and I'd be dropped off the last bus, you know, the opposite way into the mountains, mm -hmm. you know, and walk back in the dark. <laughs> um, and, and so it, everything was disorientating and my, my you know, uh, I couldn't speak or communicate, so everything becomes really visual. Uh, and I was walking around, you know, these temples, but listening to, you know, Goldie, drum and bass, kind of urban music. And I, I just, that fusion, not being too seduced with, with one culture, kind of relinquishing your kind of Londonness or your kind of urban experience. And trans, you know, the landscape changes, but your sensibility and other things you carry with that. So that kind of intersection uh, was like, yeah, this is this is interesting. You know, we as uh, people, you know, need to decenter our worldviews and uh, you know change the scene in the background. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of uh, you know long story. I, I just you know it was utterly seductive, and I really you know push pulled the whole thing around and uh, made some really good connections. Um, and so I've kind of vowed to go back because that's what that situation, but also Japan as a place really does. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I kind of, yeah, I, I vowed to go back and uh, so three years later after graduating, working a bit, painting, um, I got a, a government sponsored um, scholarship, which is a really good gig. Mm -hmm. um, it's called the Monbusho Scholarship uh, and that was a, a kind of paid research degree. Nice. Um, so that was that was really how, how I got there. Yeah, you're like the only PhD painter I've ever heard of. <laughs> well, to be honest, you know, this, this kind of notion of practice, you know, maybe some people won't enjoy hearing this, but it, it's, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, the, a kind of you know, a doctor of painting. Um, but it, what it does do, it allows you to really concretize your, uh, your research, your interests, uh, and, you know, dovetail writing and theory with, with a practice. You know, what, what is a practice and how can you kind of approach it? Um, you know, in another way beside just the act of making. So I really appreciated that experience. Um, but I, I think ultimately, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. just, a, it's nice. It opened some doors and uh, it certainly allowed me to come into academia, which uh, I'm eternally grateful for. Totally, totally. Um, I read that you grow your own pigments. Is that true today? Yeah, so I've been kind of, deconstructing my practice uh, slowly and surely and I started uh, my kind of career as a painting really throwing the stuff around and the heavier the thicker the juicier you know the better as I was concerned um, and that's what I love I love to look at that um, but as my own work I've 
gradually over the years, I see like in 10 year increments, I'm getting further and further away from, from substance. Um, and to the point where, you know, and, and pigments are really good because it's deconstructing the medium. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you're taking its raw essence, which is dirt, you know, and, uh, you know, you use uh, flax seed and you make, you know, linseed oil. Uh, you use that same, you know, flax hemp to make the canvas, you know, the linen. Um, and so in, I, I just love that kind of um, archaic, uh, it seems so anachronistic today, you know, to, to kind of use these raw materials. Um, so th that was just a whole part of that. So I became obsessed with organic pigments, you know, mining pigments, um, refining um, and using organic colors. So uh, there was a large period when my works were really earthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, 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 and I love to teach it. You know, students love, you know, we, we kind of grow up with smart surfaces and, uh, you know, buying nice oil tubes from the shop. Um, so they really enjoy this kind of activity of grinding and making pigments. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I think I want to make a, a kind of some short film about it because it, as a, as a practice, um, just as a ritual, it, it reminds me of like singing bowls, you know, yeah. uh, some meditation, because you have this glass, um, sandblasted glass uh, tabletop and this big kind of dildo-like glass bulbous, you know, miller. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of grind it with this black, you know, sticky, and you just round and round, and the kind of sound of it scraping is really mesmeric. Um, and just watching and feeling and manipulating and smelling. So it's such a sensual kind of experience. Um, and anyone who tries it, anyone who touches the pigment, they just want more of it. Um, and the students, you know, I recognize the students, you know, desire to do that. So in, in a kind of intro to painting or wherever I can, I try and do that. Yeah, I think it's a great process. I mean, um, anytime you can get people to think about to just the material at to material material materiality materials they're using is great mm. i think too i mean like it it strikes me as a um you know perhaps more environmentally friendly way to create paintings that rather than buying plastic packed tubes of oil or plastic packed tubes of acrylic you're you're getting to the um to the raw material which is always yeah. important yeah, I tell you what, just recently this summer, um, I had the most satisfying creative endeavor was digging a deep hole. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, uh, you know, creating some foundations. I built a decking. Uh, and again, that was really beautiful. I just love making stuff and learning new stuff. So I made some complex kind of decking, mm -hmm. but I had to dig like below the frost line. So like five feet and a half like uh, holes. Mm -hmm. And the physical exertion, the, the kind of repetition, um, and I we got really clay mud, and I was just I had to kind of to, you know make it really um, pliable. I just poured you know water into it, so I was just slushing this kind of clay really deep, and then just pulling it out. It was totally exhausting, but so seductive, and having my hands and my you know just my arm digging it in and pulling out this lovely clay. And then at the bottom, this this mirror in the ground. Mm -hmm. You just got this hole, this abyss, this dark mm -hmm. hole that goes down and down. And that's the kind of ah, oh, it was you know you have to be there, but you're, you're kind of your fatigue, your 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 hands become so crusty and uh, against the soft mud. Those sensations, those contrasts, um, 
and the beauty and the filth were just it was it was like the best thing I'd done or seen or experienced for a while. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I totally relate. Turning the soil is uh, for the gardens. It's like it's great. Anytime you can do that, have physical exertion along with like a creative process. It's super dope. Yeah. It was like Tolstoy, the, the dignity of labor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is, I mean, in this day and age too, is the dignity of labor is, is really disappearing as automation rolls in, as, as um, you know, I, I, I just see, I see labor being just not dignified anymore. People don't want, you know. Yeah, um, that's dope. Yeah, speaking of holes, we've been underground together in caves in Ireland. Uh, this another, another memory is uh, you descending down into this deep thing that we weren't allowed to go into and, and just seeing you kind of like disappear but also like the way you bounded down through the cave was pretty impressive <laughs> it's pretty cool that cave in particular was really sweet too because i remember it sort of being like it was like almost like there was like a hole just below a tree and it was really rainy and muddy that day and we had to like mm. snake into this little muddy hole and then it opened up of course like as caves do you go through this tiny hole and then all of a sudden it's either massive or it can be massive or it can be really really small and you have to crawl a lot that might have been that 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 was a cave with like a lot of crawling and a lot of walking through water yeah that was that was paul nogolem i remember okay and and i remember just watching you go ahead and you were like you know rabbit down a hole you you just you know you were there as you say you know it was a tree and some mud and then you know you were there the next minute i saw the 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 soles of your feet kind of go just disappear mm -hmm. uh and uh, but yeah that's that was a really nice system because you know it, you had these um contracting and expanding caverns um and it was just you know you put your body through so many different locations and and different uh you know um spaces uh, so I, I, that's what's so exciting is that it's a continual emergent kind of experience. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can uh, there's a I, for fun I uh, often go on conspiracy websites and and read things because I I think of them as sort of like today's mythology, you know. And one that is uh, making the rounds is this theory that the Earth is hollow, <laughs> and I think it's been around <laughs> for a long time. Uh, some people think that there's a hole in Antarctica where, where aliens live and they are, you know, <laughs> special beings. And I wonder if those people have been in caves. Uh, and I also wonder if they were in the caves, would it change their mind? It might actually reinforce their ideas that there's a, the Earth is hollow and there may be creatures below the surface. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, are, you, are you interested in, uh, in Americans' fascinations with, with like, these conspiracies I, I i don't i don't know if england or japan or has the same fascination as americans do with like conspiracy it seems so integral to the american experience right right so not at all so it's i look at it with bemusement mm -hmm. uh, i really do uh you know because i come from uh, an old part of the world and so 
you know, it's as we were in Ireland, you know, you're surrounded by monoliths and, and real evidence of uh, peoples and histories through time and mythologies and paganism yeah. and and Romans and, you know, Viking conquests. And so the, you're surrounded by these and you grow up with these stories. So it's kind of ingrained in your sensibility. Um, and you kind of take on that knowledge from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago and you kind of grow up with uh, these, these stories. Um, and I can see how, you know, this new land, you know, would be suspicious, you know, to take on. Um, and it, I, I think it's the kind of other root of it is this fear of the other, you know, uh, and uh, demonizing the other, hmm. you know. Um, and so coming at to it with the kind of presumption that it, it's it's their land and nothing has existed prior to this arrival, yeah. you know, that nothing civilized or authentic. I mean, which is know, kind of the which is the kind of the original conspiracy of America founding. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> um, there were people here and they had brilliant. I mean, I just learning about the Hopi culture since we're in the United States, or since we're in Michigan, like the Hopis had uh, trade routes spanning from the Great Lakes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So this idea that, you know, it's just like, as you, are you familiar with Graham Hancock? He's a countryman of yours. No, Graham Hancock. All right. I'm yeah, he's a journalist. He's a journalist, but uh, specul- I don't know, speculative, speculative uh, ancient history. Probably put mm. place him there. But I mean, really well informed. Knows a lot about sites like Gobleki Tepe in Turkey. Knows a knows a great deal about um, you know the, the ancient sites in, in the United States. He's written written about. Um, he's he thinks that there was an ancient civilization that was uh, more advanced than like in sort of Atlantean situ- situation which mm. is where people drop off for him usually but the content of his books is actually really nice because it, 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 you can read them for you know you can be a psychic nomad in his books for sure but um, <laughs> where was I going with this I was thinking about oh yeah so um, you're coming you're coming from a place two places really Japan and England that have ruins ruins abound and um I think there's this idea that ruins are a place where you know humans can look back on the past envision a future and maybe envision what that past was like and again take things that are good from it leave the bad um america doesn't have those sites uh mm. or if they do they're few and far between or they're made out of organic materials and so they're not here anymore but um i was in mexico city and we got to go to teotihuacan and saw that giant pyramid. I don't know if you've ever been to Pyramid of the Sun. And uh, I it was uh, it was a really, it was like one of those experiences where it's like, again, in my crazy mind, I'm like, oh, is this a simulation? Because this seems really synchronistic. <laughs> we were on top of uh, the Pyramid of the Sun, Cecilia and I, and these blue uh, butterflies are just fought, like all around us. And I forget the specific, but they're like on top of the Pyramid of the Sun. Like what are butterflies doing on top of a rock pyramid? I couldn't. Right. That's suspicious. Yeah, right? yeah. But it seems like so. It just seemed like that's such a sacred site. Like you really, like when you see this site and you're there, it just feels like I, I start to go with Graham Hancock's theories of like these people must have been. Who knows what kind of like we we don't know what these pyramids were really for. We speculate that they were to, you know, raise humanity towards the heavens. But I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff about the pyramids in Egypt, for example, being like resonant, being based in in cubits. You know, there's a there's some tons of uh, interesting things that are un, kind of unexplainable 
the, lati- mm. the latitude the latitude of the North Pyramid, and this is true, the latitude of the of the Pyramid of Giza is the speed of light. <laughs> so wow. that's kind of insane. And then I don't know. When I see synchronicities like that, I'm like, that gets me so excited. I'm trying to figure out how to like make that a project. I mean, it's kind of just a it, it's it's an ongoing fascination for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I love these uh, this notion of you know speculative history or you know forensic uh, architecture. Uh, you know, whereas one notion is credible, you know, within ten years it's it's outmoded and there's a new notion and it's just you know one fantastic notion after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so why not you know augment that and uh, you know kind of work with stuff and mis mismanage those that information i think uh, that that is a really interesting territory mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I also i also think it's kind of a territory where i could get <laughs> sucked into and become you know it's, it's nice to have a, a cecilia who is very grounding and and like she's she keeps the keeps the anchor here and um saying that now makes me think about and maybe it's landscape theory and you can correct me but this idea that what people need is a. Uh, it's like a, an ability to go out into the landscape, experience life, but also a place to return and like maintain that grounding. And um, I don't know, how does that factor into your painting practice or your life? What, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, like for me, uh, you know, going into the studio on a regular basis is like a, a pilgrimage. Uh, and uh, you know, we, we as a we as a culture, we you know the, the the modern day pilgrim is the tourist. You know, we feel we need to uh, break from the normalcy of our, our lives and uh, you know go through some trial, be that travel, getting through security, you know, whatever that is. But we arrive at this destination and have some epiphany, and we take something away from that, uh, and we. Im- immerse ourselves into you know uh, something that is uh, distant from our regular selves uh, and we come back you know a different person so th- this is something that's ingrained in us as, as, a, as a culture and it's manifested through um, you know tourism be that virtual or uh, you know emotion fantasy but for me you know going to the studio is 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 that kind of um, uh, you know that that pilgrimage where I immerse myself into. I get outside. You know, I detach myself, and I I, I can close the door. There's no, nothing around. I can put on some uh, uh, music. I put. On, I just listen to uh, usually uh, North African trance music, or you know, just very or, or Brazilian capoeira music, and it's just chanting, a repetitive chanting. You know, non-linear. Uh, and you know one track will last you know 40 minutes and I, I just kind of very quickly I can train myself to uh, everything disappears you know I can get into the flow and, and that's a very seductive uh, and necessary situation for my well-being but I have to re-engage I have to return uh, and you know like like the pilgrim I need to come back and tell my stories and communicate those stories um, so I, I, I think that's what we do as artists, you know, you have to be able to detach uh, and go to the extreme and, you know, come outside of yourself uh, and your regular kind of experiences. Uh, and, you know, the extremities are the most interesting places. I agree. Um, and you just Because, you, because we've got to es- escape the, you know. The simulation, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, you just made the perfect segue into 
the question I love to ask people, which is, and we're in Ann Arbor now, which is decriminalized psychedelics. Great way to expand and leave the uh, <laughs> the reality, and and also very. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced them and or or want to talk about them even because I understand it's like a personal. Everybody's different about how they talk about it, but um, yeah, I mean, some of the experience I've had on on like psilocybin and DMT are just that they they definitely factor into the sort of things I'm asking you about now and the sort of ongoing questions I have for myself about what are we where are we how is it mm. what is what is happening yeah 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 uh so you know i'd be lying if i said that you know it, it uh i grew up and it was that culture e-culture you know mm -hmm. trance music was just coming out and lsd um and so as a young teenage art student uh you know that that's what we did and we'd often you know take take acid and go into the forests mm -hmm. uh and because it was a safe place you know you don't want to be taking you know acid in the middle of london yeah definitely so Set, so, so so you know i had some really profound you know as a 16 17 year old i had these really unable to kind of cope with the, them you know really profound deep uh experiences um one of deep mesmerization you know like the roads turning into a snake skin and you know and just standing two hours looking and feeling a leaf um so this kind of intense uh observation and distrust of the visual process you know were totally you know i i needed to have that and i could see the seduction of it um but you know i knew that it had risks too yeah. confuse my sensitive growing brain <laughs> sure but now you're uh, now you're a grown man but you have probably like, yeah. you have a family and stuff too yeah 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 but I, I mean actually i'm still you know i mean again you know when i go to the studio i, I get into that that kind of vibe and yeah. going into the caves for me mm -hmm. is that same getting out of my body and distrusting and prolonging and losing sense of my spatiality and my my body yeah i'm um, getting out of that um but i mean i i've actually become really because uh, when i was in japan uh, i two things that really ran alongside my obsessive painting habits were basically martial arts and mountain trekking, mm -hmm. mount, mountain pilgrimage. Um, so those very stoic kind of ascetic pra practices um, were really instilled in me uh, in a, an obsessive way. Um, and those really teach you to kind of push your, your body to extremes. Uh, and I've experienced things on the top of a mountain, you know, being lost and spending two days by myself um, and you know I I got into a situation where yeah I, I kind of deliberately wanted to escape any photographers any roaming kind of trekkers um, and so I went across the paths and became very isolated very lonely very quickly and I spent two days on my own and I was uh, starving freezing uh, shaking you know injured and I hallucinated in, in a major way, oh, wow. uh, and and that was through through uh, you know sleep deprivation, through starvation, through thirst, uh, and I saw and experienced nature uh, in uh, you know the same kind of unreal way that I experimented with LSD in as a teenager. That's like uh, it was such a good intense. point. Like it's not the natural way to get there. Plus, it really makes you think like what 
what was our ancestors' experience like when they, that was like the norm for people to be starving and freezing and injured and out in the yeah. environment alone. It's like yeah. reality was, I mean, observed reality must have been completely different. And like yeah, in some yeah. ways we're so, now we're just like the, like an easy way to ex- to escape that is to like take a, take a drug like psilocybin or DMT. Mm. And I, I, mm. I don't know about LSD just cause it's so synthesized for me. It's not my, my choice. Um, I don't know. That's just neither here nor there. But um, this—I'm uh, really interested in that experience that you had in the mountain. That's really cool. Um, and yeah. Also, do you do you know the uh, director? What's his name? Alejandro Jodorowsky, who did yeah, <laughs> Holy Mountain, El Topo. He claims that yeah, he yeah. found the set of El Topo uh, in the similar experience, starving and hallucinating, and uh, out in the desert. Oh god, I love, I literally, I just uh, saw, uh, so I'm part of a uh, film subscription for experimental film and I'd seen his films 15 years ago and just that blew my mind and but like El Topo and uh, uh, the other one, what's, what's the other one? Yeah, Holy Mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, because I love Don Cherry, the musician. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he does the soundtrack for Holy Mountain. Uh, and, it, yeah, it, I just watched it again recently. It blew my mind. Yeah, dude. It's... He, uh, his, life, his life's work, I think, is probably some of the most magical, transporting, personal work I know about. Like, he, he went on from doing Holy Mountain and El Topo to doing these other, like, three films that are more recent where, like, his sons are now in them. His son was in El Topo. He's a naked kid on the horse. And, right, um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, like, he really integrates his family into into everything. And actually, I don't know if... Do you remember Mona McKinstry, by chance, and, and Stamps? She was, she was like... She, I don't know if she was a painter, so you probably didn't have interactions. Sounds familiar. She, uh, Sounds familiar. she was in one of his films in Chile. She was from Chile, and she was in one of his re- more recent films. Huh. So that was cool. Um, but, yeah... Uh, Alejandro's dope. I think we can agree on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That imagery. Actually, I can see, you know, like looking at some of your drawings and the characteristics, Especially these kind right of now. pseudo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible territory. Yeah, it's really, really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I never really know anymore. I'm just kind of, you know, making the work and seeing where it takes me and really like relishing just letting myself do that now because um mm-hmm. you grow up in a society that tells you that you gotta like like i was like leaving art school expecting to like go into a gallery system or something i don't know sell work to rich people that he is like yeah i'm kind of glad that it kind of worked out to where i have this day job now it's really i think deepened my experience with the work and and, and things like this yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and uh you know i i, I I'm really fascinated by your website and your drawings uh, and your imagination and how you synthesizing all these experiences. Uh, it's really rich and that you can find a methodology that aligns with your lifestyle and that you can do the gardening mm-hmm. and you can ha- keep a, a shelter over your head uh, and, and you know have that stability but still diverge and, and have that space for uh, wonder yeah. you know is, is is really really important and those spaces uh can either be really prominent or you know be adjacent to to your stuff and so you know i i think it's a really healthy uh you know outlook to, to have dude thanks man that means a lot thank you um yeah. cool man i, I so we're at four 
It's been about an hour. Wow, that was a that was quick. It went by quick. It always really does. Fun. I was wondering. I kind of like going through my notes. Um, the one thing I wanted to have on record here again was that the word lens come from comes from lentil, which I think is interesting because of the shape. Ah. And huh. uh, and then I also wanted to think about John D real quick once more, because I think there's this like it's this thing that I learned from Terrence McKenna. Who I also wonder if you're, he's he's really cool too, um, but John, John D had this apprentice Edward Kelly, who was like his um. He was he he, he was much younger than John D, and he kind of came into his life, uh, late. But John D had this really young wife, and and Ed, but Edward Kelly was his apprentice also, and they were both looking into this shoe stone, copying down what they called Enochian magic, and um. Edward Kelly, it was kind of like, he was like, he kept telling John D, uh, they want me to sleep with your wife. <laughs> and so Edward Kelly started like being with John D's wife and it caused a lot of friction, obviously, in their master apprenticeship. I think that's just, I mean, I love this sort of archetype of, uh, that kind of stretches through religion and mysticism of like, uh, you think of the Mormons, like looking into a hat and like scribbling, scribbling notes, but then no one else can see the discs or like John D and Edward Kelly looking in their shoes zone. But unfortunately, I mean, John D. also is like a major proponent in the Elizabethan co- court of of, uh, of colonialism and going over to uh, South America. I mean, his shoe stone was yeah. literally a piece of obsidian volcanic glass from at the Aztecs. Right. And right. so you wonder too if there's real magic, like is, it's coming from this other place. I don't know, but he he's a he's a really interesting figure. <laughs> I just want some of that yeah. some of that in this pod. Yeah. 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 That's, that, that is nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do uh, you have any uh, hard stops? I don't want to keep you too long. Too. Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. Okay, I'm for good. sure. Yeah. Cool. Another thing I was thinking about in your work, too, is this, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, this uh, hippo. Oh, yeah. 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 Hypnerotomachia yeah. polyphilia. Yeah. A mystery book, right? Mysterious yeah. author. We don't know who it is. There's so many from that period, it would seem like. Like, I'm thinking of the Voynich manuscripts of uh of of other things like what do you think was fomenting at that time where people are writing these anonymous mystical books uh so i i think in the the case of hypnorotomachia polyphily it was uh this uh, it was proposed to be this uh friar who was basically he was a he was a pervert you know and he was he was are totally seduced by the notion of antiquity, you know, uh, and reviving antiquity um, and experiencing architecture as an erotic experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is the kind of age of, uh, you know, the kind of Chaucer, uh, you know, um, pilgrimages and stories and tales. So it's a fusion of kind of narrative and, it's, you know, the knight's tale, uh, one of, uh, you know, valor going into, you know, departing you know, the rational self, you know, the, the noble, the nobleman and becoming the wildman wandering in the forest and entering hypnosis. Uh, it's just incredible. And he just walks around like he's on acid, you know, he's just so pedantic. Mm-hmm. Everything is described. Like I came across this, uh, you know, uh, a ruined colossus that was 20 feet spanned 20 hands to five hands and he goes through all these details really unnecessary and it's a really difficult read it's not like a fun read but it's just like an uh, uh, this monk who is trying to synthesize and find some outlet um, 
in between love stories, which was the, the thing, um, and religious narrative, but also something else, this kind of new hybrid. Uh, and again, that's like Athanasius uh, Kersha, where it was this, this kind of fusion reality of, you know, uh, imaginative speculation with, uh, you know, religious uh, intensity and uh, pattern, the pattern of uh, what's acceptable uh, and working around those boundaries, which accounts for its being, um, you know, anonymous. Um, I see, yeah. But, uh, yeah. You couldn't put it out in Christian society at that time. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm kind of reaching the yeah. end of the dead end here, as we say on the call to say. Uh, I was wondering, <laughs> are there are there things you're thinking about that we need to include here, that we need to get out? Uh, I mean, there's so much. My mind is just so preoccupied, you know, with a kind of, you know, the work that I'm currently doing, uh, you know, working with camouflage and, you know, uh, oh, full yeah. body, yeah. full body oh, masks. How we miss talking about Dazzle? We gotta maybe yeah. You know, um, but you know that that's, that's kind of really interesting, uh, and especially with the kind of uh, notion of um, these masked figures storming the you know the, the federal buildings. Yeah, um, yeah. And and you know, in the current, everyone you know, a thousand masks, and you know, what's the real self? And and I think this this is a really interesting period to, to kind of just to stop and uh, and. and think about yeah that yeah so i i'm really doing that you know what what is the self what does it mean to to show to be which faces is is real oh yeah yeah the benefits of resisting identification yeah i love that yeah dude in my woo woo mind um did i know did you know about the great conjunction that occurred on uh december 21st of last year is this no. it was this uh, astrological event where uh jupiter and saturn came closer than like in the last 800 years um and it uh we could, it was visible to the naked eye so we could you could actually see jupiter and saturn right next to each other re- below the moon i remember now it was yeah. in the uh it was in the um air sign of aquarius which people uh who are more woo woo than i claim is the uh sign that we are now entering the age of Aquarius leaving Pisces so um, it's going to be a period of uh, demasking for sure and it's going to be a period of um, I mean it could be a golden age or it could be could be something else but we're always we're always hoping for that golden age I think I think Marshall yeah. McLuhan might have might have said something to that effect like or not. yeah I don't know there's some I don't know I don't know what I'm talking about anymore but uh yeah <laughs> more more woo woo <laughs> crazy <laughs> yeah well cool man i think i think maybe we are really at the dead end now so yeah great and uh, i'd love to catch up with you another time yeah you know when when, when we're in uh, more uh safe conditions you know fluid yeah yeah man yeah i feel you i'm gonna stop the recording <laughs>